Late Night Conversations, Monday to Thursday, 10 p.m. till midnight. Social Conversations. It's uh, 33 minutes after 10, and in our social conversation, we are talking about inpatient psychiatric care. What is it? We are joined by Alan Sweden. Um, we know that this is the man who co-founded and manages Panda App. He's also a clinical psychologist who previously co-founded and headed up the uh, Akeso um, group of psychiatric hospitals and the Alan Litz, uh, former general manager and director of Uber in sub-Saharan Africa. Alan, thank you very much for joining us once again. Always a pleasure. Hey, Patricia. Very nice to be on your show again. Thank you for having me. Please, firstly, um, uh, define for us what inpatient psychiatric care is. Um, Generally, what what it means in in the South African context is acute care, which basically means short-term care, um, which has different connotations for the private and the public sector. Uh, when a person's um, psychiatric illness or psychosocial distress is such that they need to be in a contained environment for whatever reason that is. Okay, and a contained environment, would that mean at home or in a psychiatric hospital? So generally what I'm talking about is that it means in a psychiatric hospital. And there there are three different kinds of patients that get admitted into psychiatric hospital or three different um, categories of patients. Um, You get voluntary patients and those patients are they they, they understand that they can give consent to be to be admitted into hospital. They give consent and at the same time, they're free to leave whenever they choose to. And that's called a voluntary admission. Um, You get assisted admissions. Those patients are not involuntary, but neither are they able to give consent, either because of their age or because of some kind of cognitive stuff. So they just they just they, they aren't able to give consent. So they might be disorientated, but they're not involuntary. And then you get involuntary patients, and those patients don't need to don't give their consent for treatment, but they've been admitted into into a psychiatric hospital because of a risk that they pose to themselves or to other people. Um, and they need to stay there until they're discharged, either by the hospital manager or by a team of psychiatrists or a panel, um, et cetera. So you get those three categories of patients. And most private psychiatric patients, uh, p- private psychiatric hospitals in South Africa admit voluntary and assisted patients. Very few of them assist, um, admit uh, involuntary patients. And the state really admits all three different kinds of categories for all different kinds of reasons and all different kinds of diagnoses. Before we go to the various uh, mental health uh, treatments that might need inpatient um, attention, in South Africa, do we have enough psychiatric hospitals uh, to cover those who need uh, public health care services? It's it's a great question. You know, so the the point is um, sort of that, that psychiatric hospitals fit into a context of care. And... The context of care is such that people sometimes need an acute admission, which just generally means that they have a lot of attention placed on that admission, that they're seen by psychologists, by psychiatrists, by social workers, really by a team. And then the question really is what happens after that? And what happened um, a few years ago is there was the tragedy of the life as a demani, um, you know, the, the, the tragedy around life as a demani, where so many patients who were in long t- long-term care we moved out of long-term care, out of the life um, hospital that they, that they were in, um, into these kind of community placements. And as we know, I think over 200 of them, you know, died as, as a, in some way as a consequence of their having been moved 
um, without proper preparation um, or other, you know, medication, or sometimes they even kind of died of thirst or starvation. It was really a tragedy. But what happened as a consequence of that is that patients needed to stay in acute hospitals like um, Stagfrontine or Vescopies or Tara, those government hospitals where they generally, I would say, you know, there's not maybe enough beds, but there are an adequate amount to kind of most of the time meet with supply, so long as patients who don't need acute care have got somewhere to go after that. And when, what, happens with, what, what happened after life acidemani is that the, this backlog um, emerged because there was nowhere really to send these patients once they were finished with their acute care. And so um, they stayed in acute care for much longer. So instead of the length of stay being around sort of, let's say, 30 to 50 days, depending on their diagnosis, some of these patients were just staying for months on end because they literally had nowhere to go. So it, it's, a, it's a question that you ask, and, and it, like I said, it's a great question. Um, you know, there are norms, um, and normally you need about between five and eight beds per about 10,000 people in the population. And South Africa, I think, you know, mental health care generally, even in the public sector, is actually, it actually is a great service um, in, in some areas. They're pockets of real excellence but they're not enough long-term beds. And so what happens, you get these long-term schizophrenic patients or patients that just can't look after themselves. They can't go back home um, and they've got nowhere to go. And, and they end up taking up an acute bed for much longer than they need to. That's quite a long-winded answer, but I hope you found that interesting. It is very interesting, but also very uh, saddening that we don't have enough long-term um, assistance available for those who might need it in South Africa. Um, maybe a bit later we should touch on what can be done to ensure that our public yeah. health uh, system is able to 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 assist families and, and patients who need inpatient uh, psychiatric assistance. So l let's go through yeah. some of the mental health disorders that might end someone up in, in, in a psychiatric hospital. I mean, can it range from anxiety or is it uh, for patients who have uh, bipolar um, and, and other more severe uh, mental health issues? So, you know, it's so interesting that really, you know, when we talk about diagnoses, um, like let's say um, anxiety or depression, um, it, th those can really mean anything. Um, in, in a sense that like, you know, you can, have, you can have anxiety from time to time. You might even sometimes need to take an SSRI like um, Zoloft or Prozac or something like that, which will help you to manage your anxiety or your depression. Um, but then you kind of get into other ways of looking at psychiatric or psychosocial illnesses away from diagnoses. And really the way, what, what, I, what I really kind of started to think about, um, which I'm not unique in this way, but what I really started to think about uh, when we start, when we ran the Akeso group of hospitals is that patients get admitted um, really because of three reasons. The one is that they pose a risk to themselves or to other people, and they're just not coping um, in, in, a, in, in, in an outpatient environment. In other words, they're not, they're not coping at home. They can't look after themselves properly. Their families or the people that care for them can't look after themselves properly. And what they're doing every day is posing some kind of risk. And that can be suicidal behavior. Um, it can be um, you know, self-harming behavior. It can be threats of violence towards other people, et cetera. And at that point, you know, a person becomes unmanageable and they may need to be hospitalized.
So risk is one is one factor, and and that cuts across. So that that can be risk factors of depression. It can be risk factors of anxiety, where you know where your worry is you know kind of causing you to to act in a way that you to, in order to kind of relieve yourself of the anxiety, you do things that are risky, such as drinking too much or some people believe it or not they cut themselves to kind of get rid of some of their anxious feelings um and so the the, the risk factors are, are sometimes are, are very are a very important component the other factors are uh functionality so is this person able to function you know can they wake up in the morning and dress themselves can they go to work can they drive um you know are, or, or, or are they really just stuck in bed and if they're stuck in bed then who's going to be caring for them so people that have very low functionality also sometimes need to be hospitalized. And then the last factor is distress. You know, people might be functional and they might not be at risk, but their internal levels of distress are so high that they actually need to be in a place where they can be medicated um, and observed in such a way that you can start to get give them some kind of relief. So away from the diagnoses, um, and I'll talk about diagnoses in a moment, we really look at those three factors. We look at risk and we look at functionality and we look at distress. And then you make a decision about whether or not a person needs to be hospitalized or not. Let's go through the diagnoses. So in, in, a, in a, let's say, a, a full service uh, psychiatric hospital, um, let's talk about the Akesa Hospital in Randburg, Crescent Clinic, which was the hospital that I first worked at from about 2005. So, so Randburg really offers a, a full service. And what I mean by that is it offers two adolescent programs. Um, it has an addiction program for adolescents, and then it also has a program for adolescents who are, who are just not coping. And adolescents in Gauteng, interestingly enough, are between the ages of, um, but really between the ages of 12 and 16, but the hospitals don't generally admit kids as young as 12 if they can help it. But let's say under 16 year olds in, in the Western in the Western Cape, um, it's under 18. Um, so that's an adolescent. So we've got two, they've got two adolescent units there. They've got an eating disorders unit where you're looking at, you know, um, a, a lot of the time also adolescents, but also adults who have either anorexia or bulimia. And it's so out of control that they need to be in a very controlled environment. Then you'll have addiction programs. Um, and you'll have these, like I said, ad adolescent addiction programs, and you can also have adult addiction programs. And generally, the addiction programs are all kinds of addictions. So you'll get you'll get different people who are addicted to different substances, but going into the same kind of adolescent, same kind of addiction program. And generally speaking, in in, in and around Joburg, you'll find people who are addicted to alcohol. Um, to the opioids, which include heroin or over-the-counter medications that includes codeine. Um, you'll find people that are addicted to cocaine or crack um, and, and other substances. And then you'll have what we used to call the general programs, or well, they still do call it the general programs, but I don't work there anymore. And the general programs are really broken up into three different categories. You have the half-functioning patients, and those are patients really who, before they had some kind of event that caused them to be hospitalized, they were pretty high functioning. Um, you have the, the the sort of middle group where you have that these people would have generally quite chronic um, illnesses like bipolar. And when they're going through either a, a manic phase or a depressive phase, they sometimes need to be hospitalized as they transition between those phases or as they hit the peak of one of those phases of either mania or depression. And then you'll have the really chronic patients that are suffering from long-term schizophrenia, um, 
or I'm trying to think what other kind, really kind of chronic bipolar patients um, or patients that have got some kind of organic problem, they've had some kind of cognitive issues, either they've got dementia or they've had some kind of brain injury and those patients would, or would also be hospitalized. So you've really got eight or nine different subsets of, of patients in one hospital. Hmm. Yeah, so let me go back to the question on the hospitals. Since we don't have um, enough long-term care, and I'm specifically looking at the public health care system, um, do no. we have enough, uh, at least, health care workers in psychiatric uh, health care uh, in the public sector? Or are we also short there? We, we we struggle in the public sector, and, and I have to kind of say that I haven't worked in the public sector for a long time. I, I did work um, in the at Tara Hospital and at the um, Alex uh, Alexandra Children's Clinic quite a long time ago. I have kept in touch with a lot of people who work in the public sector. So, but but really, what I'm going to say is more anecdotal than me being there. Um, and and what I'll say is that there's there, there's such a demand of of mental health care in the public sector at the moment and it's been exacerbated by the pandemic as we as we've spoken about before so many times and you know there's 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 there are really excellent psychologists psychiatrists fantastic nurses excellent occupational therapists social workers you know the whole range of 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 mental health professionals that you would expect to find in these hospitals but the issue is that the demand is just so strong and because there's not enough services, generally speaking, for outpatients, in other words, a lot of, we've, we've spoken before as well, that about 80% of people who struggle with mental health illnesses don't get recognized at a primary healthcare level. So what happens is that because they don't get recognized and treated at a, at a, at a primary level, the symptoms um, become worse over time. And, <clears throat> excuse me, eventually, what happens is they, they, the, the symptoms which may otherwise have been quite well managed as outpatients become so bad that they need to be hospitalized. And it's, it's again, it's, it's kind of, one has to look at the whole context. So we spoke a little bit earlier about the fact that there are not enough beds for patients to go after care, but there's also not enough doctors and psychiatrists and nurses who are trained to spot mental health before they might need to be hospitalized. Mm. Um, so, so it, you really have to look at mental health um, as, as an overall service provision, um, although obviously tonight we're focusing on hospitals, but you can't really look and say, you know, are there enough hospitals without saying, well, what does that look like with outpatient care and with post-hospitalization care? Um, and again, I'm giving you a very long answer. I think that we could do much better as a country. And I think that there are so many other countries that could do better in terms of their mental health offering. So mental health is really an issue and uh, the fact that uh, health care is not always affordable and not always freely available, then it's something that we should be trying to support families and those who are um, mental health care uh, patients as much as we can. So now in terms of what is the experience like when you are an inpatient psychiatric um, uh, you know, a patient. What is it like yeah. to be in in a facility such as this, in a hospital such as this? So let's talk about the the patient that um, is me or you, and we're we're kind of generally quite well functioning, and something happens to us. Let's say um, let's say a few things happen to us at the same time, and it causes an underlying depression 
to to become something that we just can't we can't manage and, and the people that are, that we live with or that love us can't manage and so they say listen patricia allen you need to go into hospital and you need to get your medication right and we need to sort of work through um some of the issues that have happened that have caused you to kind of be in such a lot of distress okay so this is these are people that are just you know normally pretty high functioning but are going through a very difficult time and let's just say it's your first admission so in south africa generally speaking i spoke a little bit earlier about length of stay so the length of stay in a in a hospital like tara or stack or vest copies for a patient suffering from depression will probably be between let's say 28 and 40 days okay and and that really is a function of the patient coming into into the system having to go through a process of being um uh, categorized and then being put into the right place then getting the treatment and then you know having to having to work on an outpatient plan or or a post-discharge plan but in private hospitals the average length of stay is much closer to 12 or 13 days um, and the reason for that is that a lot of people who go into private hospitals are employed and they only get 10 days of sick leave a year. And if they have to get more than that, then they have to tell their employer where they are. And sometimes they just don't want their employer to know. So generally speaking, a patient who goes into hospital in a private sector will go in for, let's say, 12 or 13 days. And in that time, they'll be given a lot of psychiatric medication and psychiatric medication generally takes between 10 and 14 days before it really starts to take effect. And at the same time, they'll be put into some kind of group program, um, which will help them to deal with the trauma that they've had just before they were hospitalized and look forward to what's going to happen when they're discharged, how they're going to you know, change their coping mechanisms. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I would say that for most people that go into either the private sector or those hospitals that I was talking about, like Vescopies or, or Tara, or even Stagfantine, if you go into the voluntary wards, the experience is not terrible. And I think that that's what people really kind of are surprised by. I'm not saying that psychiatric hospitals are necessarily a fun place to be, mm -hmm. but if, you, if you're a voluntary patient hospitalized because you know of some kind of depression or anxiety or something that you're going through, it generally won't be, it will generally be a pretty therapeutic um, experience that you go through. And then at the end of it, you'll be discharged on medication and with some kind of discharge plan. <coughs> Excuse me, I need to go get a glass of water. Okay, and, um, go get a glass of water. Let's take a quick break because I need to hear all okay, of this. Thanks, Let's take thanks, a quick thanks, break, uh, A-team, as we're speaking to Alan Sweden around um, the experience of uh, inpatient psychiatric care. Night Conversations with Patricia Anduli, Monday to Thursday, 10 p.m. till midnight. Social Conversations. A-teamers, we are in conversation with Alan Sweden, who is a clinical psychologist, and we are talking about inpatient psychiatric care and what this looks like in South Africa. You can join in on the conversation on 0614104107. That's our WhatsApp number, or SMS four one three. Alan, did the water help? <laughs> are, are you quick? I'm sorry about that. No, yeah, no, no it's I'm, fine. I'm I totally understand. So you you were yeah. still explaining to us about the various facilities. Yeah. So so I think what I was trying to say is that you know people shouldn't really be scared of of going and seeking help. Um, and and if they need to be hospitalised, it's it's generally not a terrible experience at all. Um, and I think people are often quite surprised by that. And I was always struck by um the difference in the feeling in a in a hospital in a, in a normal during a normal weekday when you've got 
um, the patients who are engaged in, in their group sessions or they're seeing their doctors and they're kind of socializing with other patients. Um, I was struck, struck by the fact that actually these are quite happy places if, if people feel cared for. And it was really, you know, late at night when the anxiety start coming back or, you know, you get visited by family and friends who may be very anxious and, or, you know, keep asking you, how are you doing? You know, are you going to be okay? You know, things like that, that you would, you know, and I'm not blaming those family members because obviously they're also really anxious about their loved ones, but it's only then that you would sort of start to see some of the other behavior coming out. Um, and you could see why a person had been hospitalized. But really what I'm trying to say overall is that being admitted is not generally a terrible experience if you are a voluntary patient and you understand that you need to get the care that you, that you need. Um, for other patients, for patients that require lockup, um, it's, it's, it's a, unfortunately a very different experience. Um, and there, there really are you know, two different ways that people are, are, are restrained. The one is a kind of a chemical straitjacket, if you will, uh, because we don't use straitjackets anymore. So it's, it's a mix of, of medications that really, you know, kind of contain a person's behavior, but to the extent that really the personality is lost. Um, and obviously, you know, one needs to do that because that person, you know, may be, you know, so, um, so um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, just kind of either in a psychotic episode or some kind of manic episode where they really just do need to be contained. And then of course, the other kind of containment that, that, that's required is the physical containment of either a ward that looks more like a cell um, or a ward that you'll find in, in the private hospitals, which are still lock up. And even though they, they, they are in private hospitals and maybe there's a bit more money that can be spent on the kind of, uh, fixtures and fittings, it's still a lockup unit. And, and those people really, I think that, um, that they, have, they, have, they have a more difficult time in hospital. Let me go to the lines. We've got uh, Enzisani. Atima, good evening. Hello. Good evening, Enzisani. Please speak louder. Hello, can can't hear you? Yeah, now I can hear you. Go ahead. Sorry. If, if you, you, you have got some certain certificate which was, you you passed the, with mental disability. It's, it's difficult to find a job, say, or no. Please, please repeat. I didn't hear you. I said when you you have got a qualification with with mental disability. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to find a job? Wait, I've I've i got some sort of certificate, but I can't find a job because. I've got mental disabled because those who are fed, mental people, they destroy something because it's, it's not stable in their mind. So you've got a qualification, Enzisani? Yes, I have it. In, in what? Mental All right. And, and, and hand in hand, you've also got uh, some sort of um, documentation that says that you do have a mental health uh, condition. So is it difficult? It's been difficult for you to get employment. But and Dr. Mahamatu, by know me. He knows me because I'm eight years old. All right, Enzisani, let's allow Alan to respond. Thank you very much for calling in. Um, listen on the radio. 
Ellen, sure. So here's a person, our A-teamer, who's got a qualification in labor relations, but uh, with the mental health uh, condition that he has, is finding it difficult to get employment and is asking, is it at all possible to get employment? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a tough question. And, you know, uh, I feel for Ansani. The, the thing is that um, there, there's two issues around having a disability. Normally, a disability, a person with a with a disability, and I'm assuming that actually this person has been kind of given the the a diagnosis of a long term disability, and there you're really looking at probably something like schizophrenia um, or um, or bipolar, you know, or, or really really you know bad major depression. Um, so there's two the, the two issues around that is the one is around the person's functionality and. You know, despite their qualifications, it is it is difficult for people with a, a really chronic mental illness to to remain functional all of the time. And so, you will need a very understanding employer um, who's prepared to take the chance and is prepared to be um, you know thoughtful and considerate um, around the person's needs. Um, and the second thing is around the stigma. Um, and I think you know we've spoken about Panda you know a few times and. The, the, the issue there is that people, you know, don't really want to take on someone um, who has a mental disability, even if they're, you know, you know, in no way posing a risk to you. You know, we, we've seen enough movies and we've seen enough, you know, we've read enough books about sort of like mad people where people, you know, generally are, are afraid of people with mental mental illness. And so those two factors, the, the factors around functionality and the factors around stigma really there's one more factor really which i'll touch on very briefly but but those are the two most important factors that that prevent someone from getting employment and my heart really goes out to entasani because i think that they're not alone the last factor that i wanted to talk about is that once a person gets disability and doesn't matter if they're in the private or the public sector they get very little support basically what happens is that every six months or so they go for a report to their psychiatrist you know, or, or their, their local hospital, their local clinic, who signs them off again for disability. And, and so it goes. So they get some kind of disability grant or they get paid out by some kind of insurance contract, but actually nothing happens to help them to get better. And I think there's a huge opportunity there really to help those people to get better and to become more functional. Ellen, because of time, we need to close up our conversation. Um, but please do remind us how uh, can people get in touch with uh, your app, the Panda app that helps people um, who just need to connect and get that mental health support. Patricia, thanks. Um, so Panda is an app that you can really you can get help and support anonymously. You can sign on anonymously and you can really find your own communities. Um, and what you need to do is, is search for Join Panda in the app stores. Um, and you'll find it and download it and sign up and really join the community and get the help that you need. And thank you very much for, for that opportunity to talk about it. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, have a very pleasant evening further. And you too. Thanks, Patricia. Have a good one. Bye, Ben. Hey, teamers, let's go straight to the news with Mudupi Mahalimela. Mudupi, hola.